This morning's passage is from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Eric. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all today. Uh, Let's see. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Frank and I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you guys this morning and I want to welcome you. Um, We have been working our way through the book of Exodus. Uh, Really a flyover taking only 15 weeks to do it. We're in our 14th week uh, right now. And I just want to warn you, as as difficult as um, some of these passages have been uh, for us, confronting what God has to say to us, uh, this one today might be the most difficult. So we have some challenges here this morning. So I just want to prepare your hearts a little bit for that, and I want to prepare us uh, as well through prayer, uh, prepare the message for all of us as well. So let's pray. Uh, Lord God, uh, again, we we thank you for your word and its truth and the fact that you don't hold anything back, uh, that there isn't anything sugar-coated, but that also creates uh, a great amount of uh, challenge and dissonance and disorientation for us. And so I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit leading and guiding us that we would uh, understand and seek your will in all of this. Um, uh, God, help us uh, with this message today. Uh, as, as always, I pray that uh, even though you've called me as your messenger, that you would move me out of the way so that uh, the Word of God could be applied by the Spirit of God to the hearts of the people of God. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we had all the, the plans and the furnishings and the personnel uh, for the tabernacle. All of that got planned last week. It was seven chapters, 25 uh, through 31. And next week, we get to see the tabernacle actually getting built. But today, in between, we have what's called the rebellion, chapters 32 through 34. The people of Israel, God's people, screw things up. Is anybody surprised by that? I I mean, that's that's just this constant circular pattern of not only the Israelites, but also of us in our, in our faith journey and our walk with uh, God. Chapter 30, uh, these three chapters actually work, uh, break out pretty well like this. In 32, we have the rebellion itself and everything that happens as a result of that. In chapter 33, there's this massive intercession by Moses as he uh, goes to God and he prays and seeks God on behalf of the people. And then in chapter 34, we see that there is a renewal of uh, the covenant that God has made with his people. So let's just begin, dive right in with what was read uh, by Eric this morning, the first six verses. So Moses is gone for 40 days. And in the grand scheme of things, that's really not very long. And considering there 
that all of the, that the people have been through, it really shouldn't be that big of a deal. In fact, it might be nice that they got a respite uh, from all the activity and all the theology and everything going on for 40 days. But in fact, 40 days is 40 days with no word or update from Moses. He leaves and, and naturally people are going to start wondering what's going on. Uh, some of you know uh, how many, I mean, I quote this all the time. So you've heard this before. If you've never heard this quote before, first time, it's, I think it's very helpful. Um, it's Daniel Gilbert, who has written several books. He's a psychologist, uh, research psychologist at, at Harvard University. He says that given a lack of information, human beings will connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. So if you are not gathering information about a situation, you will still have an opinion about it, and without information about the situation, you will connect the dots in the most negative way, the most pathological way, the worst possible way. It's just human nature, okay? It's just human nature to do this. It's unfortunate, but it's part of our fallenness. It's part of our sinfulness. Now, Moses had absolutely no obligation to keep... Uh, the people posted on what was going on. He had no obligation whatsoever, but it sure would have helped. It's one of the reasons why we try very hard to communicate as much as we can at this church about what's going on, including financially, because we know that if we hold that information back, even though things are fine and dandy, people are going to connect the dots in the most pathological way possible, and then, and then all the scuttlebutt gets started. And so this is what's happening with God's people. And this, this idea of given a lack of information is actually driven by selfishness and ego. There's no other way to explain it. It's evil. We just naturally think the worst of people. Like I said, it's, it's human nature. It's fallen human nature. In any event, God's people end up doing exactly what he commands them not to do. They do exactly the opposite. After all of the promises that they made that they were going to do everything that God commanded It took them less than 40 days to say, nah, forget that. We're going to go our own way. Uh, The Old Testament scholar J.T. Alexander writes this. In light of the preceding chapters, it is ironic that the people should desire to have a symbol of God's presence. Moses had just received instructions for the construction of a tent within which God would dwell in the midst of his people. Yet, whereas the tabernacle with its golden furnishings portrayed God as a royal personage, the golden calf, in marked contrast, represents the Lord as a mere beast. The book of Exodus emphasizes the importance of not only knowing God, but knowing God as he truly is and not as we imagine him to be. In other words, we need to know God's name and we need to know his character. And absence this information, this constant preaching of the gospel to ourselves, we will forget God's name, we will forget God's character, and we will go our own way. And this is also one of the reasons why the second commandment is so important. The second commandment... um, Uh, when we talked about the Ten Commandments, one of the things I said about the Second Commandment is the minute we start to make images of God, we end up characterizing God in a way that He isn't. And look at what Alexander writes here. Instead of this royal personage, He's now become a beast. That is not who God is. Okay? On the other hand, though, we, we have a pretty good understanding as to why it's a calf. And actually... 
It was a bull calf. We need to understand that. Specifically, it was a bull calf. Listen to what John Walton writes. The bull, as a symbol of military prowess, was common throughout ancient Near Eastern societies. With Moses apparently having disappeared, the people felt the need for a tangible connection with the divine, thus the bull calf. So you see in verse 1, the people say, we need gods to go before us. They've already had this incredible military victory uh, in the Exodus over the Egyptians, the, the, the greatest superpower of their time, and yet the Israelites are now saying, we need these bulls to go before us. We need these divine beings in order to go before us. So they're still being influenced by their culture, by their surrounding culture. And this becomes a challenge not only to them, but it's a challenge uh, to us as well. The, the powerful influence of living in this particular culture that is decidedly not what God would will for us. So look what happens uh, as we continue on in Exodus 32, um, 7 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. So God has a really good understanding of what exactly has happened. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That's another word for stubborn. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now we can at least understand God's frustration with the people, right? We, we can understand that. But what God saying is, says here is really interesting. Here's what he's saying. I have to pull away from the people so that they might still, on their own without me, be able to enter this land that I have prepared for them. The problem is that the people are so stiff-necked, they're so stubborn, they're so arrogant, and they're so relentlessly rebellious that if I continue with them, I am sure to eventually punish them all for their foolishness because they cannot help themselves. They cannot help themselves. They will still be a nation, but they're going to be a nation without me. But in verses 11 through 15, again, a maturing and more boldly leading Moses beseeches God and intervenes for the people. And he does so by reminding God. He goes to God and he reminds God of his promises and he reminds God that his character simply should not allow for him to lead, leave his people alone. So he reminds God of who he is and he reminds God of his character and he says, this is why you're not going to walk away. Um, I, I don't think... It's a bad idea. I don't think it's a bad thing to remind God in prayer of his promises to us. Sometimes we're a little timid about doing that. It's not formulaic. Uh, don't start to think that if you remind God of his promises that he will immediately respond to you. That can get a little troublesome. But it is, a, it is an act of faith to go to God and say, your word says this to me. And I'm calling on you to be a God of your promises in your word to me. There's nothing wrong with that. It's an act of faith uh, to do that. Well, uh, God relents and he decides to stay engaged with Moses. 
But there will be a call to account for what they did. That's one of the most difficult things that we're going to have to go through in a few minutes. But God does agree to stick with it. But now Moses has a problem with the people. So God is, God's wrath is burning hot, but now Moses has a problem. So look at verses 19 uh, through 24. And as soon as he came near the camp, that would be Moses, and saw the calf and the dancing, the people were dancing around the calf, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. That's the tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. And he took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire and ground it into a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink the water. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I added the, you know, the expression, but I can't imagine him saying it any other way, right? Okay. So we have to talk about this, but I, I will tell you, I, I am, I'm quite fascinated. Uh, I run into a lot of people who have a huge problem with a God who gets angry about anything. I do. I, they do. There is absolutely no room in their mind for a God who would ever get angry about anything. They also have very little room in their mind for anybody else who gets angry unless they're angry about exactly the same thing. Okay? I I run into this all the time. Okay? But they never seem to have an issue with what? Yes, I heard it. Their own anger. They never seem to have a problem with that. Okay, for, for whatever reason, a God who gets angry and other people who get angry, that, that's unhealthy, but their angry is always righteous and just. That's called the self-serving bias. And we run into it all the time. How many times have you run into somebody who won't even engage with you about God because they say that God of the Old Testament, he's angry. And I don't want to worship a, an angry God. Okay? In fact, some of the angriest people I know are people who refuse to consider a God who gets angry about sin. Can you see the dissonance there? Okay. If God is not allowed to be angry, but you are, then who exactly do you think God is? You think you're God. Well, I never said that. You didn't have to. It's simple deduction. It's simple deduction. God gets angry about sin. God gets angry about sin. He gets angry about your sin. He gets angry about my sin. The whole idea of him having a problem with sin is why Jesus had to come. And and that's the glory of God in the midst of our sin. That's good news. We need to understand that. People are fallen, emotional creatures who are made in God's image, and so anger is going to happen. But we need to be, like Paul says, we need to be angry and do not sin. That's where it gets very, very difficult. See, God never sins in his anger. Moses, however, may have gone a little bit too far. <laughs> he, he, in his anger, Moses breaks the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And there's, there's um, 
uh, some ancient historical symbolism here that if you're just reading the story, you may not uh, pick up on. But to smash any sort of tablet in that context that records a legal agreement or a covenant means that the agreement has either been annulled, it's, it, it, it's no longer enforceable, it's been broken by both parties, or the time allotment for the agreement has been fulfilled. Okay, The duration of the agreement has been fulfilled. I know for a fact that there are some people in this room right now that uh, have paid off their mortgages on their house and have had a mortgage burning ceremony. It's the same idea. Or those of you that have paid off your car loan and you, and you literally will burn the car note, not the title, but the car note, <laughs> in order to symbolize the end of this covenant that you have to pay people. It's, a, it's exactly the same idea. The problem is, is that God's covenant was an eternal one, so it's not that the duration is over, but Moses has symbolically broken the covenant now with God by busting uh, these tablets. That means that in order to go forward, there's going to have to be a renewal of the covenant, which we're going to get to in chapter 34. But before that, there's going to be more intercession by Moses, a whole chapter worth of intercession in 33. But how about Aaron? I mean, it's pretty easy for us, and we did, to laugh at his scrambling, blame-shifting, leaving-out-of-key-details explanation. Kind of sounds like a husband who went out and bought a boat without consulting his wife. That's kind of what happens there. Um, and the reason I say that is to let you know there's a little bit of Aaron in all of us. You understand that? There's a little bit of Aaron in every one of us. We're all blame-shifting, excuse-making machines. And that all started in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. We're just following in the footsteps of, of, uh, of Adam and Eve. When God comes to Adam and says, what is this you have done? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And he says, no, the woman you gave me. Wasn't my fault. And then he goes to the woman and he says, what is this that you've done? And she said, well, the adversary deceived me. And so I ate. Blame-shifting, excuse-making machines. But let me say, this just struck me again as I was studying for this week. Look at this slide here. This is what I finally come to the conclusion about Exodus, which is so beautiful. Exodus is constantly pointing back at Genesis. How many times have we talked about Genesis during this series? that it just points back to creation. It points back to who God is in the beginning. It points back to the fact that we screwed this up in Genesis chapter 3. But also, Exodus is constantly pointing forward to Jesus and ultimately Revelation and the coming of the new Jerusalem. So you see how Exodus is just at the center point of so much in the Bible. That everything flows out of this. You could, you could make that argument. No, everything flows out of the cross, and I would agree. But Exodus points forward to the cross. It also points beyond the cross, and it points behind the cross, the reason for the cross. It, it's really pretty incredible. Now, this next paragraph is really rough, but let's do it. Here's where it gets really dicey. 26 through 34. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp 
and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and, and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, but they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. The scholars, even the scholars who are unsympathetic to a God who is angered by sin, uh, say that this was not a random nor a Moses-inspired event, this killing of the 3,000. And it's certainly tragic that 3,000 people died because of their sin. But if you read and understand this event in light of what God says in verse 33, which we just read, you find that it isn't random and it's not capricious. God is drawing the line here. And furthermore, if you notice, this is a type of consecration for the Levite priests. This is an an object lesson of sorts for the priests and for the people of God. Following God is not cheap and easy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book, kind of a polemic against this idea of cheap grace. Yes, God is a God of grace and mercy and we can rejoice in that, but it's not cheap grace. It's not cheap uh, mercy. And so this is, this is a, an object lesson against that. And there's a call to obedience and sacrifice. And I know some of you are thinking, man, good thing this didn't happen in the New Testament. Oh, no? <laughs> uh, there's a chapter called Acts chapter 5, where a couple named Ananias and Sapphira made a mistake. And, and things did not turn out well for them either. We don't know the eternal Destination of Ananias and Sapphira, there's been lots of debate about that, but we know what happened in the temporal to them when they violated God's law so clearly that they fell down dead when they lied uh, to the church, when they lied to the church. Now, one of the questions I have to ask myself in the midst of this is, uh, does this frighten me as a sinner? Yeah, (laughs) it does a little bit. But I also know that this is exactly what Jesus took care of on the cross. And so in that regard, I'm frightened, but I also know that I'm saved, that I'm redeemed. And that I can, even as a sinner, I am able to go to this throne of grace of God's, according to Hebrews, with boldness and confidence and claim that promise of God. This is the whole point of why Jesus came. It's the whole reason. And, And so... And so it's hard, it's very difficult, but also there is this confidence and joy because I am in Christ and because you are also in Christ. Again, Exodus is critical to our understanding of who Jesus really is. If we just read the New Testament without an understanding of the Old Testament and Exodus and the sacrificial system, the Mosaic sacrificial system in particular, um, We can get a picture of Jesus, but it's really an incomplete picture of Jesus. We don't really understand the depth of who Jesus is without understanding all of this backstory that 
that we are provided in Exodus. That's why it's so important to understand uh, this. So what happens next? I'm very glad you asked. In the, in the first three verses of chapter 33, God tells Moses to go ahead to the land that he had promised, but he also said, I'm not going to go with you because if I go with you, I'm going to consume you. Now, is God saying, I just can't take it anymore? You promised to be my people, but five minutes later, you were already betraying me. That sounds like a reasonable thing, but no, that's not what God is saying. God is not emotionally flipped out. Rather, he is saying, it seems to me that what you want as a people is all the benefits that I can provide for you, but not my presence. And he says, okay, I can actually make that happen. In the long run, it's not going to be what's best for you, but I can make that happen. Okay? Because if I'm going to be with you, I do have the power to consume you. I'm God. But you don't seem to care for that part of our relationship. So you're going to see what it's like to have the benefits, but also not have the protection, the presence, and the provision that I can provide on a on an ongoing basis. Parents, I want you to think about this. Think about this. Those of you who have children, you have the ability to control a lot of what your kids do. You also have the power, in a sense, to consume them. (laughs) And sometimes you might feel like it. But you don't, do you? You don't. Sometimes we do let our children learn the hard way. Uh, We're present, but we kind of take our hands off and let them learn those hard lessons the hard way. And sometimes what our kids want is they want all the benefits that we can give them, but they really don't want all the ties of our presence, our authority, our control, and our insight. Right? But when we do withdraw, and we withdraw too far, what happens to our kids? They get scared. They feel insecure. They don't like it. There's a dissonance with children. Child psychologists talk about this all the time. This dissonance that children feel of wanting freedom, but wanting that safety net that their parents provide. And children, most of them aren't old enough to really know what to do with that. So in one moment, they're screaming for you to get away from them, and then in the next moment, they're screaming for, why aren't you here? That's the dissonance. That, so it's, that's kind of what's going on here with God the Father and, and, and His children. God is not going to abandon them. We see that in the first 10 verses of chapter 34. But part of the relationship building is going to be Moses' intercession for the people and Moses' faith in calling on God to be their God again and again and again. How many times does Moses have to do this? How many, time do the, how many times do the people have to repent? How many times is there this breach in this relationship and then a, a rejoining of the relationship? Well, think about your own personal relationship and walk. How many times is there a breach? How many times do you come back? How many times do we remember, I need to be preaching the gospel to myself? This is the same pattern that we experience individually. And again, it's why Jesus went to the cross to know that we can always come back. We always have a place uh, with God. One of the things that we need to remember about the book of Exodus that's really challenging is that God is both the author of the book and he's an actor in the story. That creates tremendous tension for us because we're fallen and we're fallible. 
But God feels no tension being the author and an actor in the same story. He feels no tension there because he's God. So what happens? Again, I'm glad you asked. Moses gets to work interceding on behalf of the people in chapter 33. He sets up a a tent outside of the camp of the people there. It's not the tabernacle tent, but it's a special meeting tent. This special meeting tent was for Moses and God to do business together. And verse 11 is pretty remarkable. It says this, Thus the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Now, this idea of Moses and God being face to face is not physical. There was a veil between them. It is metaphorical of how, of how intimate the relationship is between God and Moses. It's, it's an understanding of, of the fact that there's tremendous intimacy, vulnerability, and authenticity uh, there. Nevertheless, again, again, we see Moses' growing leadership. We see that he's maturing, and he is persevering. At this point, you would think Moses would kind of go, I'm done. I've done everything I can. I don't want to go up that mountain again for crying out loud. But he hangs in there. He keeps going back. He keeps going back. And interestingly, you begin to look at all the parts that Moses is playing and has played. We find out that Moses is a priest. He is acting on behalf of the people for God. We find out that Moses is a prophet. He's preaching to the people of God about the potential consequences of their behavior, and he's acting as a king. Even though they didn't have a a king, he's acting as their leader. He's doing it all. And this is why Hebrews compares Jesus to Moses and says Jesus is the truer and better Moses, because Jesus is our priest, our prophet, and our king, and there's none like him. He's really doing incredible work for the people even though they hardly seem to appreciate it. And so in verses 12 through 23, Moses intercedes for the people and he begs God for his presence. So let me ask, when you pray, is it just for yourself or do you pray for others as well? I'm telling you, intercession is a big deal. Intercession, intercessory prayer is such a big deal that Jesus does it on behalf of us. The, That prayer in John chapter 17, of all the people he prays for, the last group of people that he prays for is us today, sitting in this room right now, today. He prayed for us. It's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, and you should pray for yourself. Nothing wrong with that. Pray for your needs. Pray that God would give you wisdom. But pray for others as well. The reason we pray for others as well is because not only do they need it, But it also gives us a connection with others that that intercessory prayer gives us that no other mechanism in our relationship seems to give us. You ever been so angry with somebody? I I, I will tell you, I, I struggle with this kind of prayer. I'm so angry with somebody. And I've always heard that if you just pray for that person, your anger seems to go away. And it's like, but I don't want the anger to go away. (laughs) But it's true. You start praying for somebody. But also, there are plenty of people to pray for who are in trouble, who are suffering. We have our own struggles. We have our own suffering. We have our own challenges. True. Get other people to intercede for you. But as they do, you should be interceding for others. It's part of what brings us together as a body, even when we are physically distant from each other. 
so important. Intercession is a beautiful and powerful thing. But also consider in verse 16, this is Moses' closing argument. Verse 16 is his closing argument to God for why God needs to go with them. He says this, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. That's a true statement in a question form. And this resonates and should resonate with us for today as, as Christ followers because Christ makes us distinct. In Christ, we have the distinction of knowing how much we are truly loved by God. In Christ, we have the distinction of knowing how fallible we are and yet how God makes us whole. In Christ, we, know, we have the distinction of knowing that though we are exiles in this world and that is challenging, our true home is on its way. And in Christ, we have the distinction of knowing that by the filling of the Holy Spirit, we can love and serve others in ways that the rest of the world just simply cannot understand. So God renews the covenant. Look at 34, 1 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord the, God, uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, we like the first part of that. We love that, that grace and mercy and patience and all that. We love that. And then we kind of skip over that part where he says, there's going to be a problem with those who are guilty of iniquity. We need to remember that though he is slow to anger and he is patient, his patience is not infinite. He's slower than most of us, if not all of us. But it's not an infinite slowness. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity for our sin, and take, take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a co covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been seen in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you, you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So God renews the covenant. New tablets, a, a verbal renewing of the covenant here. It's just incredible. Here you go. God is not a God of second chances. You can't even count the chances. Jesus even refers to this in the New Testament when he talks about how often we're supposed to forgive people, which is really hard, but he says you're supposed to forgive them every time, every single time. God is not a God of second chances. He is a God of grace and mercy, and that means that at any time we can come 
and he'll take us. So never give up on God's grace. And we see in these verses as well, the proclamation, this is so important, we see in these verses that God proclaims his name and he declares his character. His name and his character are central concerns and should be a central concern of our prayers as well. And then verses 11 through 16. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which, to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. He's saying, be careful of this culture that these other lands have. This culture has a troublesome, th- these lands have a troublesome culture. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. That word translated pillars there, if you go and do a, a little word study on it, there's a much greater detail than just pillars. These are specifically pillars made in a particular shape, a phallic shape, because that was their God. Their God was sex, their God was fertility. All of these people, all of these people had this in common. That's why they're all named in this passage. They all had as their God sex and fertility. I am so glad that in the 21st century we've gotten beyond our obsession (laughs) with things like this. It's so much better today. Okay? For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of your land. And when they whore, yes, he uses the word whore, when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Yeah, God uses the word whore here. So the word is actually a double entendre, okay? First of all, it means literally, if you enter their culture and become uh, a part of their culture and acquiesce to their culture, you will become whores in that you are going to become obsessed with sex the way they are. But also, whore is a metaphorical way of saying you are going to be willing to do anything in order to get what you want and to get your way. You'll give anything to get your way. You'll do anything in order to get what you want. That's another way that this word whore is being used there. It's abandoning the Lord and turning to our false gods. This is a call to be faithful in those times when you're sure that God isn't paying attention and doing things your way and the way you want Him to do. By the way, pastors struggle with this too. We're constantly asking God why His... His plan it doesn't seem to be lining up with our plan. We struggle with this too. It's hard. I get it. But in his wisdom, he knows what he's doing. In fact, God has what I would call a 720 view of our life. He sees it this way. He sees it this way. The best we have, the best we have on our best day, we've got a 180 view. That's it. Most of the time, it's more like a 60 degree view. God's got a 720 view of our life. And that's why we should submit to his wisdom. And of course, the Israelites have struggled with this for centuries. They never get it quite right, no matter how patient or merciful or even stringent God is in the midst of this. 
Ultimately, what conquered Israel in 722 and what conquered Judah in 586 came not from outside armies. We need to understand that. The outside armies of the Assyrians and the Babylonians were merely the mechanism, but the reason the people fell in 722 and in 586 was because of the deterioration and the rot on the inside of God's people. That's why they fell, their unfaithfulness. Ironically, Malcolm Muggeridge, who has been described as a 20th century prophet, wrote this quite a while ago. Our culture has the distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions and then providing them with facilities for propagating their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did Western man, the United States, the Western culture, thus did Western man decide to abolish himself, creating his own boredom out of his own affluence, Does this resonate with anybody? I've got so much that I'm bored. I've achieved everything that I have ever wanted to achieve and it hasn't brought me any satisfaction. Gosh, there's just not enough good stuff on Netflix and Amazon Prime to watch. We're bored. We've amused ourselves to, to death. His own vulnerability out of his own strength. His own impotence out of his own erotomania. Here you go. We've become intimate. We're so obsessed with sex that we're not even interested in it anymore, really. Himself blowing the trumpet that brought the walls of his own city tumbling down and having convinced himself that he was too numerous, too labored with pill and scalpel and syringe to make himself fewer. Until at last, and I love this little phrase here, until at last, having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and drugged himself into bemusement, he keeled over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. And there's a direct correlation, cause and effect relationship to our unfaithfulness in this. Tom Schrader used to talk all the time about how frustrated he would get with people who had educated themselves beyond their own intelligence. You ever, yeah, some of you are shaking your you remember him saying that. That person is educated beyond their own intelligence. They're so smart, they don't understand how foolish they've become. It's true. That happens. And that's what Muggeridge is saying here. We believe that we're too educated and sophisticated to do this to ourselves. We're certain. We read this and we just go, ah, he's crazy. But God is still warning us. He's warning us. He's telling us. You need to be faithful. We're on our way to that self-destruction, all the while touting our own wisdom. It reminds me starkly of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, that the wisdom of God is foolishness to human beings. And what, women, uh, what, what, what humans consider to be that foolishness is Christ on the cross. People look at Christ on the cross and say, that's just utter foolishness. He looks weak and defeated hanging there. Yeah, he does. But that's how God chose to save us, is through the cross. That's God's love and wisdom hanging on that cross. Don't we humans love the ironic? Don't we love the reversal? Don't we love the upside-down story of the underdog winning? Don't we love that? Isn't that just a, 
we just embrace that all the time. Rudy, Rudy. Okay, some of you get that. Okay. I'm not talking about Giuliani, by the way. Some of you have politics on the brain. Rudy played for uh, Notre Dame in 1975. Anyway, there's a movie made about it. We love this ironic, this reversal, this underdog. So why is it so hard for us to accept that Christ on the cross is what gives us victory? Why? Why? The rest of chapter 34 is God simply reminding his people again of the feasts, of the Sabbath, and of his glory. It's, it's yet another reminder of God's relentless faithfulness to us. And that relentless faithfulness is on full display on the cross. When Jesus hung there as our victory, our redemption, our deliverance, and our salvation. So our call today is very simply this. Let us forsake the wisdom of this world and embrace the wisdom of God, Jesus on the cross. We pray together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you again for your word and its truth. And man, oh man, tough stuff today. Uh, even with scholarly explanation, it is, I know how difficult it is to reconcile some of this, and so I just give, pray that you would give us all eyes to see that, that James reminds us in James chapter 1 that we can pray for your wisdom and we can be enlightened by that, and so I pray for that today. I pray for your Holy Spirit to fill us, uh, to let us know who you are and how much you love us, and I just pray that uh, that would give us the courage to just continue to come to your throne of grace with boldness and confidence. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.